thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series, Can I Trust My Bible? And so some of this are not, you know, textual studies from the Bible. We're looking at some external sources as well, because if you don't trust the Bible, you can't use the Bible to prove it. That would call, be called presuppositionalism. You just can't say the Bible's true and I can prove it from the Bible. Uh, that's a little unfair in a logic class. And so some of what we're doing, some of what we did last week, is a little different from a preaching context. But today I want to look at, is the Bible credible as a history book? In other words, can we trust the accuracy of what's written in the Bible from other sources in order to know whether we should trust the Bible in all areas? Now last week, I said there are only three possible outcomes or realities in our pursuit of truth or theology. There's only three possibilities, and I'm gonna name them again. There is no God, and the atheists are right, there is no God, or there is a God, and he is known in one of the world's religions. He has revealed himself, and we know him. There is no God, there is a God, and we know him, or there is a God, and we do not know him. He cannot be known, and in that case, the agnostics would be right. So either the atheists are right, there is no God, the religious are right, there is a God, and we're fighting over which one he is, or the agnostics are right, there's a God and he is not known or cannot be known. Those are the only three possibilities. Last week I wanted to attack the atheist argument a little bit by talking about the probability of God and that we just simply can't explain things without God, that everyone has the same problem. The Christian can't explain where God came from and the atheist can't explain where first cause came from. We all have the same philosophical problem. The Bible claims to be a revealing of the one and only true God. And interesting for, interestingly, for most of world history, especially in the Western world, Europe, North America, etc., the Bible was seen for most of history, if you're young, I know this is gonna be a little bit of a surprise, for most of history, until very recently, the Bible was seen as true in all of its teachings, everything, the history, was believed. The miracles were believed. And because of that, the religious teachings and morals were also believed, which is why the foundation of the West is the Judeo-Christian worldview. It influenced ethics and law and art and history and every discipline in the Western, in the Western world. Then, I would say 1700s, 1800s for sure, and 1900s, there was a concerted attack on the integrity of the Bible. And it came from, I'm gonna say, two primary sources. One was from without. And when Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species in 1859, uh, many theologians say that basically Darwin killed God. Now, I've heard a little bit about Darwin and his relationship with religion. I don't think Darwin was necessarily trying to kill God but he ended up having that effect in a very significant way because it resulted in people in the church rejecting spontaneous creation. 
Rejecting the idea that God created ex nihilo or out of nothing. And as soon as Genesis 1 through 6, 1 through 12 was rejected, it soon followed that all miracles would be rejected because they really never fit the scientific methodology. You couldn't test them. You couldn't prove them the way you could prove other things in science. So not long after that, all miracles, especially the virgin birth, the resurrection, things like that, miracles displayed in the life of Christ, had no credibility anymore in much of the Western world. Now what's interesting is when Darwin killed God, interestingly, Darwin raised his theory during a time, and I'm not making this up, you can't make this up, when people like Darwin looked at meat and saw maggots, dead meat that had been rotting for a while and saw maggots, they literally believed that dead meat produced maggots. They hadn't made the connection that flies laying eggs did it. So we were not in a very scientific world while we were making radical scientific claims and hypotheses. Think about that. We were not in a very scientific world when we were making these radical claims, and that's why biochemistry today, uh, molecular, all sorts of issues in biology are are really having a problem with macroevolution without God. Now, even before that, even before the attack on the Bible from science, there was a group of scholars in Germany. Almost all bad scholarship starts in Germany. I am not making this up. And Bruce Schaber is German, you know, Bruce Schaber, Bruce Schaber, that's German. I mean, everything bad comes out of a German school originally. So even before that, a group of scholars in Germany developed what's called higher criticism. Higher criticism was basically, in a sense, almost like Darwin, only on the issue of the Bibleist literature. Darwin was wanting to create a world without God. Higher critics were saying, we're going to create a Bible without God. We're going to try to figure out, we're going to try to free biblical studies from the heavy hand of theological conviction. It denied that God had a role in the scriptures in any way. It denied the idea of prophecy. It denied Moses as the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. It basically said, okay, let's say there is no God. How did we get our Bible? Now think about that presupposition. We're going to start with the idea there is no God. How did we then get the Bible from a human standpoint? That's higher criticism. So the Bible and the supernatural are both under attack from multiple uh, directions in the last couple of uh, hundreds of years. And once Darwin and higher criticism had their run at the scriptures, now it's just a religious book. It can't be trusted on science. It can't be trusted on history. Even the authorship, many of its authors were questioned as the real authors All of its content was simply conveyed to us from a variety of myths and religious sources to teach morals. It's just religion, it's not truth. I want you to think about that. It's just a religion, it's not truth. Well, I gotta tell you, I have no appetite for that kind of religion or that kind of truth. If I can have no confidence that this book is historically accurate and represents God in history, I want nothing to do, especially with the start of the NFL season, with Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. Although the Packers really took it on the chin last week, and I am deeply depressed. And it is a spiritual crisis for me. Although I don't pray about the outcomes of games. That's just too far. That would be my wife's arena. She's in fantasy football this year, and she's kicking our butts. 
So we don't want a religion that's just trying to convey religious truth but not actual truth. This isn't the Chronicles of Narnia. We believe this is God's word. One modern term about what the Bible would be viewed at as would be interpreted history. Now this is sort of a more liberal scholar identifying how he views the scriptures. Listen to this definition. Not everything in it is historically accurate, rather the authors conveyed information important to their religious beliefs. Okay, I cannot tell you how dangerous that view is. It's not real history, it's interpreted history. The authors are just trying to get out religious views. It doesn't really matter if there's actual history, if this stuff actually happened. So the authors would have, you know, juiced it up a little bit. Throw in some miracles. Get Jesus out of the grave, even if it's not real. Accuracy isn't the point. Okay, let's back up for a second. What if it is perfectly accurate? What if the writers of this book, the human authors, were some of the best historians in antiquity? Where does that leave all of us? with Jesus of Nazareth. So I want to throw a new term at you. It's a term that Jojo Ruba, friend of the church, threw at me the other day as we were having coffee. Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. The Webster's Dictionary says it means a similarity to the truth. It is used in literature and art and movies, etc., to give stories an air of reality or believability. A lot of details in a play, a novel, a film, or even a book of the Bible would add verisimilitude or believability. Now let me give you an illustration of this from the theater. And by the theater, I mean Rocky. From the theater. Sylvester Stallone, Rocky, the theater. So I enjoy Rocky. I do not enjoy the Avengers. Do you know why that is? I'm sure I've lost half of you already anyway, but do you know why that is? Because Rocky to me is realistic. I have no problem believing that an 85-year-old Sylvester Stallone can come back, fight a boxing match against the world's champion, and win. That is completely realistic to me because he's Rocky. He can't be defeated. Whereas the Avengers, they're sort of superheroes. They have these otherworldly powers. And I don't like movies like that for real because I view it as so unrealistic. So I don't like that kind of genre of film. It's like the different. Okay. So that's okay now here, huh? All right, it's on. I, I, <laughs> I enjoy World War II movies. They're hard to watch, but I enjoy history movies. I enjoy them because they're realistic. I do not enjoy the War of the Worlds, even though I like you know, the actor in general, Tom Cruise, I do not like War of the Worlds. I like him in Top Gun. Top Gun Maverick, I don't like him in War of the Worlds because it's unrealistic. So I like things that have great verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. They are likely to be true. They feel true. I need verisimilitude for enjoyment. 
So the question is, did the biblical authors give us verisimilitude so it would make things believable, or did they tell the truth and it is history? Jojo Rubin and I were talking about this as it relates to the credibility of the Bible. So here's the point. If every provable detail of a historical text in the scriptures checks out as accurate, why would we believe the authors are just using verisimilitude to make something believable? Why wouldn't we believe they're writing history? That's what we're looking at today. Eventually, perfect verisimilitude leads to nonfiction not good fiction. So, we're gonna look at five reasons I believe the Bible is credible as a history book. Five reasons I believe the Bible is credible as a history book. Number one, authors believed they were recording history, actual history, and had an ethical responsibility to get it right. There is no evidence that the authors of scripture were writing historical fiction. There's no evidence they believed it. Now, there are genres of literature, like wisdom literature and other places, where they're telling stories, and it's obviously those stories aren't necessarily rooted in history. You know, Jesus is telling parables. They're not necessarily true stories. He's using sort of figures of speech, etc. But the historical books of the Bible are written as history, not as stories to make the same point. There's no evidence the authors were writing historical fiction. They're not simply theologically motivated. They were accuracy and completeness motivated. Truth extended beyond ethics and morals. Liberals today would have you believe that the Bible is just written as a religious book to give us ethics and morals, but they would remove the miraculous from it. And I don't know how you get ethics and morals then from a lying Jesus. I really don't want to follow a fraud. Forgive me. I'm not into that. If it's not true, as the Apostle Paul says, we got better places to be on Sunday and we're really fools. And that's the Apostle Paul's words. We're fools if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So I want to show you a passage of scripture that indicates what the authors believed they were doing. All right, here's Luke chapter one. Now Luke wrote a two volume set. Might be a little hard for you to see. I'll read it here. Since many have, sorry about the glare. Since many have undertaken Okay, I'll just let that settle. Since many have undertaken to compile, to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, from the beginning of Jesus' life is what he's talking about, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That's a writer of scripture who happened to be a medical doctor and his attitude about his research and what he was trying to pull together for somebody he was potentially trying to reach with the gospel. I love that passage by Dr. Luke. He is on a mission to give a two-volume research set of historical facts to anyone opening to reading or listening to them. And when you make that claim, what do you expect? Scrutiny. 
You expect scrutiny. If you're going to write and say you're doing this, you expect scrutiny. You don't say this if you're going to be fuzzy on the facts. In fact, the book that's fuzzy on the facts would never have made the Bible, and I will give you another reason why. One of the tests for getting into the Bible is called canonicity, or the, the whole process is called canonicity, and one of the tests is unity with prior written books that were accepted as from God. So to get the Bible, you had about 39 or 40 authors, we're not exactly sure, and you're probably more than that when you include the multiple authors of the Psalms, even though they're compiled by one, you've got multiple authors in the Psalms, 39 authors or so, about 1,600 years over which it was written, and you know, 66 books in a Protestant Bible. And one of the things that has to do with canonicity is you can't have disagreement, you have to have unity within those 66 books written by about 40 different people over 16 centuries. It's called the principle of agreement or unity. That had to be written by like an apostle or a prophet or somebody who was recognized as such, but most importantly, they had to agree with everything that had already been written. They couldn't be in conflict with existing books. Hence, details mattered. They were scrutinized for accuracy. 66 works of historical fiction, like good literature but not the truth, to make a few theological points is an absolute insult to the most scrutinizing literary process in history, and that is how do you get your book in the Bible? That was a brutal process. Again, this is not the Chronicles of Narnia. It's God's activity in history. And people took this stuff extremely seriously when they were writing it and when they were rewriting it. Second, authors routinely use the language of history. What is the language of history? Well, names, dates, places, writing in historical narrative genre, all these things. Now, not all of the Bible is written in the style or genre of historical narrative. If you want a great example of historical narrative, be like Joshua, you know, the book of Joshua, uh, Judges, things like that, where it's written like a history text a little bit. So not everything's written that way. The Gospels are similar, but just a little different. So in the Bible, you have all these different genres or styles of literature, poetry, Psalms, wisdom literature, Proverbs, um, Song of Solomon, etc. You have law, contract, treaty, books like Exodus and Deuteronomy, along with some history. You have epistolary writings, like, a, like you're in a, a little bit of a legal class or, or a college class, and those would be the epistles, they're doctrinal. You have apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation. You have all these different genres, but even then, they're full of historical references, people, places, times, etc., and they're all presented as real and true wherever you find them. Vast tracts of biblical literature are little but history. There are chapters full of tribes, clans within those tribes, family names within those. You have massive genealogies that go all the way back to Adam and Eve. There are geological, or I should say geographical reference points in every kind of literature, cities, territories, rivers, valleys, wadis, mountains, mentioned everywhere. Events are dated by the reigns of kings, by both foreign and domestic kings, depending on what's going on in history at the time. Things are dated by them. Why would you do that 
if you're going to get that much scrutiny if you weren't trying to write actual history. The Bible reads like detailed history. Skip that the Christian claims that God inspired it. Just skip that for a moment. Look at it on a par with other history texts. And it reads like detailed history. Now this level of detail had liberal scholars pretty excited because it would be so easy to disprove the Bible on all of these details. So they were excited, if liberals ever get excited. I mean theological liberals. Some of you are in politics right now. But they don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in God, there's not a lot to excite them. Maybe cats, probably, maybe. That was funny, I don't care who you are, that, that, okay. So the liberals saw all this stuff in the Bible, they're like, okay, we can question these people, these peoples. We can question kingdoms, whether they existed, because there wasn't any other references in history to certain kingdoms in the Old Testament. So they questioned people and kingdoms, whether the text of the Old Testament was corrupted over time, whether it could be trusted. Listen to this compilation of responses. Russ Witten put this together. There have been thousands of archeological discoveries in the past century that support every book of the Bible. Here are a few examples. Critics used to believe the Bible was wrong because they felt that King David, okay, King David, we accept King David, but for a while there was no other references in antiquity to David. So they didn't believe David was real, they thought he was legendary and mythical. They pointed to the fact there was no archeological evidence that King David was an actual historical figure. Look at how far liberal scholarship went. You can't trust any history in the Old Testament, basically. The basic history of Judaism wasn't accepted. Then in 1994, which was not that long ago, I was one year old. In 1994, archeologists discovered an ancient stone slab in Northern Galilee that was inscribed with references to King David and the House of David. Critics used to believe the Bible was wrong because there was no evidence outside of the Bible that a group of people called the Hittites ever existed. This was a big deal. Liberal scholars said, okay, the Bible's just making this stuff up. There's no such thing as the Hittites. And they're mentioned 40 times in the Old Testament. So skeptics were convinced that this proved the Bible is a mythical creation of ancient Hebrew writers to make some sort of theological or political point. Then in 1906, a German archaeologist named Hugo Winkler was excavating in Bogazkoi, Turkey, and discovered the capital city of the ancient Hittite empire, discovered the entire Hittite library, and 10,000 clay tablets documenting Hittite history. Scholars translated these writings and discovered that everything the Bible said about the Hittite empire was true. And what's interesting is, about the only place you could learn about the Hittites until then was the Bible. Because the Bible is a credible ancient history book. So the Bible was there long before archaeology was, but archaeology caught up. Critics used to believe that the name Belshazzar never really existed, thus calling into question the historicity of the book of Daniel, which mentions this Babylonian king Belshazzar. Then in 1854, Henry Rawlinson discovered an inscription in Iraq that named Belshazzar as the oldest son and co-regent with King Nabonidus, who would often leave Belshazzar in charge when he traveled. So you got Papa King, he's got a little boy named Belshazzar, and when Papa travels, Belshazzar reigns. They were co-regents. 
That also clarified why in Daniel 5.29, it says Daniel was elevated to the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Second only to the king, but there were two kings, hence he was third. Critics used to believe the book of Acts was not historically accurate. A man named Sir William Ramsey, who is well known to be one of the greatest historical scholars and archaeologists in history, decided to disprove the Bible as God's word by showing that the book of Acts was not accurate. That should be easy because Luke includes all kinds of things. But then after 30 years of archaeological research in the Middle East, Ramsey came to the conclusion that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the greatest historians. He later wrote a book on the trustworthiness of the Bible based on his discoveries, and he converted to Christianity by trying to prove it wrong. Sir Ramsey found no historical or geographical mistakes in the book of Acts. It's amazing when we realize that in that book, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine Mediterranean islands, and 95 people, and he didn't get one wrong, according to this historian. Compare that with the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I I found this to be hilarious. Encyclopedia Britannica, the first year it was published, it contained so many mistakes regarding places just in the U.S. that it had to be recalled. And these are the best of us putting this stuff together. They took seriously the nature of Scripture when they compiled it. It is history. Critics used to believe Old Testament simply couldn't be reliable because they felt over a long period of time the Old Testament writings would have been changed, altered, edited, or corrupted. But I'm telling you, the people who who copied it believed they were dealing with God's word and they treated it accordingly. They wouldn't dare change it. So in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. These scrolls contained, among other writings, every book of the Old Testament except Esther, Until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the earliest copy of a complete Old Testament was from A.D. 900. Okay, so A.D. 900. 900 years basically after Jesus and about, what, 1,300 years ago. That was the oldest copy of an Old Testament. They compared this with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was produced about 1,000 years earlier. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated about 100 to 200 B.C., before Christ, They found the Old Testament hadn't changed a bit. It was handed down accurately through the centuries, one of the most incredible discoveries in history about the integrity of biblical transmission. The Smithsonian Institution's Department of Anthropology, not exactly a bastion of evangelical Christianity. We'd all agree. But we would respect the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian's institutions, or institutions Department of Anthropology has offered the following official statement pertaining to the historical reliability of the Old Testament. Now, they're not talking about you know, Genesis 1 and creation. They're talking about historical books that they consider historical. I would have a different view of Genesis 1 through 6 than they do. I actually believe it. But this is what they said. The, old, the historical books of the Old Testament are as accurate by histor- or historical documents as any we have from antiquity and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents in archaeological work. In other words, the archaeologists now use the Bible as a textbook because it's accurate. In other words, not only does archaeology confirm that the Bible is historically accurate, but professional archaeologists actually use it as a guide in their work. 
the Bible has stood the brutal and exacting test of archaeology perfectly. The authors wrote like historians. In fact, they kind of used footnotes. Did you know that? The writers would reference other scriptures all of the time, and they would also reference outside sources. There's other books that aren't in the Bible that are referenced by biblical authors. They're referencing other historic works to show that, you know, kind of know what they're talking about. The greatest archaeological, uh, the greatest Jewish archaeologist, Nelson Gluick, who's known to be one of the top three archaeologists in history, said, no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a single properly understood biblical statement. Authors routinely use the language of history, names, dates, places, the genre of historical narrative, and they got it right. Third, I like this. Authors openly admitted opposition research. All right, you know what opposition research is? You watch, a, you watch politics lately? All right? Opposition research is just nasty dirt on your opponent. And there's a lot of that flying around. Wouldn't you agree? You know, you get to an election cycle, it's just ugly out there. And what's interesting is the person that you're for they like walk on water, don't they? I mean, you listen to one of their speeches, you're like, actually, he's good, but he's not that good because I know there's stuff about him they're not saying. They walk on water and the, and the opponent, they're just evil, right? They're just pure evil. And that's sort of what opposition research does. It's just, it's kind of brutal. When, if you were writing a religious text and want people to believe it, you would not admit the dirt on your candidate. Your candidate is as smooth as silk. He walks on water, no pun intended. Well, when it comes to Jesus, I find that very interesting. Remember in John chapter 6 where Jesus did the eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon? You know, it's kind of, it's not, it's really not fun reading and it's not fun preaching. And it was so unpopular in his day that just about everyone left him except for the disciples. And he asked them, are you guys leaving too? And they said, well, where are you going to go? You got the words of eternal life. Yes, we did not like the sermon, by the way, but we're not going anywhere. The Gospels don't hide that. They don't hide honesty about doubts. When it comes to the resurrection story, they give, they give us the alternate one. They're like, yeah, um, by the way, um, another story would be Jesus' body was stolen, and that's out there too. They just admit it. That's out there too. Judas' betrayal after three years of being with Jesus. I don't think that helps Jesus. He's got a dude named Judas who's been with him for three years, who's seen everything he's done and can't bring himself to believe in Jesus. I would have just left that out. There's ways you can fill in the details of that story. You don't have to admit that somebody walked with him for three years, camped with him for three years, couldn't stomach him. He's the son of God. The Bible is totally honest about that. The disciples' doubts and struggles. The Bible's totally honest about it. 1 Corinthians 15, about 20 or 30 years after the resurrection, the apostle Paul says a lot of you don't believe in the resurrection anymore. I would have left that out. I would have left that little detail out if I were just trying to prop up a historical narrative that wasn't based in history. Authors openly admitted opposition research. Authors included miracles as part of the historical and theological record. Here's where it gets interesting. Yes, there were theological motives or purposes when you put miracles in the Bible, but since they were history, you're just including them as history as well. 
They include miracles as the, in the form of history as history, not just to make a theological point. They're not making them up. And they're not on every page of scripture. People act like the Bible is just full of miracles trying to get us to believe stuff that isn't true. They're actually, almost all the miracles in the Bible are very narrow epics in history. The creation narrative, the exodus, the conquest of the promised land, and then there's not much else. A little bit, the birth of Jesus in the early church, right around then. Jesus, his death, resurrection, early church. That's it. These very narrow epics in history. Otherwise, they're quite rare throughout the Old Testament narrative. They write, they assume the miracles are going to create assurance, not skepticism. In the Old Testament, they're looked back upon as a basis for faith in Yahweh. Remember what God did a long, long time ago when he helped us cross that Red Sea and it opened up and we walked across on dry land? In the New Testament, they're looked back upon as a basis for faith in Jesus. They are, re they are recorded as history because they happened and they are the basis for faith. Another thing, in light of the unity of the scriptures in the 66 books, how do you orchestrate a scandal of theological lies from Genesis 3 to the apostles with hundreds of prophecies and have it in perfect unity? And finally, five authors were willing to die over their convictions regarding their recorded history. External sources, I, looked at, I didn't look at this in great detail this week, but my understanding was, and I don't know if it's true, that all but one of the apostles uh, was martyred, only one of them died a natural death. That was my understanding. I started looking into it, and it evidently isn't quite as clear as I thought, so I'm not going to make any strong assertions here. But I think we'd all agree, the early church was martyred in great numbers, all right? Skip the apostles. Early Christians didn't do real well. You know, we like dressed up in lion skins, went out in the middle of the arena, you know, did some Olympics for the Romans, running. We were just slaughtered. Why would people be willing to do that? They believed in the history at the time it was recorded, they believed it because they were eyewitnesses or they were just a generation removed from eyewitnesses that saw a risen Christ. Martyrs don't typically die for fiction, right? I mean, we don't die for things that really can't be proven. They're just not important to us. We die over conviction, not fiction. Just a couple apps as we close. First, this principle, back to this principle of verisimilitude. Verisimilitude, V-E-R-I, similitude. The more that's true, the more that's likely to be true. You understand what I'm saying here? The more that we can prove to be true, the more that's likely that it's all true. The Old Testament and the New Testament do not look like history like verisimilitude does in fictional literature. Like, well, they get some of it to look like reality so we can believe the things that aren't true. No, the Old Testament and New Testament are history in all of their characteristics. And since it has not been disproven in the non-miraculous, in the areas of history, none of it's been disproven, why would we doubt the miraculous? When these writers are going from names and places and dates right into miracles, like, hey, that's what happened on this name or with this person at this place and on this date, they just don't take a breath. They tell you the rest of it. 
When we can prove all the first part, why do we doubt the second part? Why don't we give the writer the benefit of the doubt? Nelson Gluick writes, no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a single properly understood biblical statement. So if the biblical writers saw miracles as history, maybe we should take them seriously. All right, so I'm just going to pretend you're sitting out there and somebody's really skeptical of everything I'm saying. Probably somebody who loves cats. Just maybe. All right, the jokes are done for today. But anyway, what if we can prove miracles? What if we can prove miracles from history? We can in a few cases. Even the miracles of the Bible, a cause for skepticism, can often be proven from external documents. Now, there's going to be a lot of them, but let me give you a couple of them, because this is huge. When secular writers identify biblical miracles, here are just a couple of examples. Jericho. There was an unusual battle in the Old Testament in Jericho with some unusual battle tactics. The people were supposed to march around the city for about six days, you know, once a day, and then the seventh day, march around oh, six or seven times, blow their trumpets, you know, get the band kids involved in it, which is pretty cool. Get the band kids involved, blow the trumpets, and the walls will fall down. You will not have to attack it because it will be a supernatural act of God. The walls will fall down. I was always taught in Sunday school they fell outward flat, which is interesting because Jojo Ruba confirmed that. He's been there. They did fall outward flat. But the key is, and this is, I think, most important, when you're taking an Old Testament fortified city, use a battering ram. You break down the walls and the mortar. Do you know there's no evidence of that because we've dug up Jericho. You can go visit it today. It was not hit with battering rams at all. And the one part of the wall that was said to have stayed up was the home of uh, Rahab, who lived in Jericho with her cousin Rachel. But Rahab, wall didn't fall, still exists today, part of the wall. That was a miracle battle that God won one in a supernatural way, and the walls bear the evidence. Say, well, that's not, that's, uh, maybe you can do better, Paul. Okay, thanks for the opportunity. Sodom and Gomorrah, the divine destruction of two cities in the Old Testament through supernatural means, okay? And Lot's wife became a pillar of salt in the process. She was always a little salty, but anyway, it's another issue. I'll be here all week, all right. Genesis 19.24, it said, fire and brimstone rained from heaven, all right? On these two cities, she became a pillar of salt. Do you know that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which you can find today in the south part of the Dead Sea, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah sat on a fault line full of petroleum-based sulfur-containing bitumen. And there is evidence of a massive explosion that would have rained hot, burning salt and sulfur right down in those cities, exactly the way it's described. And there are charred remains all over at the south end of the Dead Sea that are actually named Lot's wife by the locals. It's kind of interesting. How about the miracles of Jesus, which are referenced in multiple Jewish, which is opposition research, because the Jews, the scholars of his day often didn't accept them. So Jews that never became Christians reference Jesus. Also, I believe Roman historians do. And they reference his magic. Isn't that interesting? They're not going to say he performed miracles, but he's kind of a magic man. 
I'd say that's pretty high praise. I mean, we're not gonna say it's from God, but the dude was doing magic and not like on AGT magic. America's got talent. Never, never, all right, never. Finally, and this is the best one I know of, darkness on Good Friday. Three authors in the New Testament mentioned that when Jesus died on the cross, there was darkness on the earth for three hours. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's noon till three. And we're talking darkness that was so dark that one of the historians said you could see stars. This wasn't overcast. This was the sun was gone, you could see the stars. Secular writers guess about this into the third century. Here are a few people that talk about this. Thales, a historian, wrote a history on the Eastern Mediterranean world since the Trojan War. He wrote his regional history in about AD 52. Although his original writings have been lost, he's specifically quoted by Julius Africanus, a renowned third century historian. Africanus says, Thales, in the third book of his histories, explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun unreasonably as it seems to me. Apparently, Thallus attempted to ascribe a naturalistic explanation to the darkness during the crucifixion. Phlegon was a Greek historian who wrote an extensive chronology around 137. In the fourth year of 202, or the 202nd Olympiad, or AD 33, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, or noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was also a great earthquake in Bithynia, which the Bible also talks about, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. It goes on to talk about how the, the historians back then tried to explain it as a, an eclipse, but based on where the sun and the moon were at that time in history, it couldn't have been an eclipse, they were opposite of each other. So for multiple centuries, historians are trying to understand what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say was the moment when God turned his back on the sun and darkness covered the earth because your sins were paid for on Jesus on the cross. What if it's all true? What if it's all God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the evidence that we have outside of your word. So we're not just mere presuppositionalists saying, you say it's true, therefore it's true. We're saying archaeology screams out the truth of the history of your word. And if we believe all of these biblical writers on all of the details of history, why would we assume they would not be honest about the rest? when even secular authors talk about miracles surrounding your kingdom throughout the ages. Now there's a lot of reasons to believe that we have your word as you've spoken to us so that we can live by it, so that we can know you, so we can be in heaven with you, so we can experience you in this world. Help us to have greater confidence that we can trust the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.